0: Well, let me start by telling you about Craig. Uh, Craig was estranged from his uh, adult son, Joe, and Craig himself was the reason for that estrangement. He had been such a bad father throughout his life. He was self-absorbed. He was as passive as a man could possibly be, and he loved alcohol more than his family and mistreated those that he was meant to love the most. And Joe, his son, both growing up and as an adult, felt the pain of that deeply. He was sore at the experience, he ached for what could have been and hoped that one day he'd receive a call from his dad saying, son, I'm sorry, I've been so bad. But it never came. Years into this estrangement, Joe's phone did ring, but it wasn't his dad, it was a hospital. His dad had been beaten up and left for dead. Craig, you see, had ended up living in some hovel scheme, bizarrely got into some argument with someone who was high on drugs, and now he lay in a hospital bed with many wounds in his body and no one by his bedside. Now, Joe's head shook and his heart sank when he heard this news on the phone. He shook his head in anger at his dad I mean, he was just reaping what he had sown in his life, right? He'd burned every bridge, refused every helping hand. But at the same time, though, Joe's heart was still personally grieved and offended. It hadn't stopped caring, and he hadn't stopped loving. Craig, the dad, awoke three uh, three weeks later from a coma to find his son Joe at his bedside. Craig just kind of looked at Joe and said through the confusion, I know your face. I know your face. Though he didn't actually recognize him at first as his son. But that didn't matter to Joe. Joe said, it's Joe, Dad, your son. I want you to know that I forgive you And from now on, I'm here to help. That's a true story. And I start with that story because I think in part, not fully, but in part, it's an illustration of the way that God moves towards us and reconciles sinful people like us to himself. We're all Craig's. We're all Craigs in the gutters of our own existence, and for whatever sinful reasons that we have, we're unable to save ourselves. Things get worse and worse and worse. And even though that we deserve to reap what we sow for the sins that we commit against God himself, he's the offended one, the grieved one. He forgives, and he restores this broken relationship with him. That is the very hope of the gospel that we've just been singing about in this service, and that is found in abundance in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's a concept called reconciliation, and it's glorious and it is life changing. Now, the Apostle Paul was writing these words to a church in Corinth, and Paul himself, for Paul himself, reconciliation with God has completely transformed his life. He had been not only reconciled to God despite his sin, more than that, he'd been given a ministry of reconciliation to be a reconciler himself, to reconcile the world to God. But not only that, uh, he's been given a ministry that encourages even Christians in local churches to live out this reconciliation that we have through Christ in the day-to-day stuff of messy local church life. You see, whether we're preaching this gospel to the world to see people reconcile to Christ through salvation or preaching this gospel to one another to live out the reconciliation that we know, it's all pretty messy, don't you agree? You know, if you've been a member of church for more than 10 minutes, you'll be able to say amen. Ministering to both the world and within the church isn't easy. I guess like Joe found in life when trying to help his dad Craig back on his feet. There were plenty of setbacks, stumbling blocks everywhere. And that's what Paul found in this church in Corinth. Corinth was a great church at first, planted by Paul, discipled by Paul and his co-workers, Silas and Timothy. The ministry was going great, Guns. He was so excited. He was there for 18 months, and he was like, well, do you know what? I feel quite content to move on because this place is banging for the gospel. This is fantastic. And yet, in no time at all, it became a shambles. I mean, if, you're, if you were... a Recommending a church in Corinth for, maybe someone's moving there to go to uni or something, you'd be like, I wouldn't go to, I wouldn't go to First Baptist Church, Corinth, man alive, that place is messy. You wouldn't do it. And Paul felt the pain of what they had done personally because they had treated Paul really quite badly. They had almost proudly tore his ministry approach apart preferring some of these kind of culturally cool appendages of their own. You know, they want the the glitzy, uh, oratorical prowess of the TED talkers. They want the crazy, charismatic, hands in the air, dancing about kind of experience. They thought that true spirituality looked just a bit more, well, energetic than Paul and a bit less covered in bumps and bruises and scars. Because Paul had suffered a lot. And though they kind of loved him at first, there was something about him that they kind of winced a little bit at that. But what we've seen through this whole book so far, if you've been joining us in our evening services, is that what has essentially saved them is Paul's persistent reconciliatory ministry. It's astonishing that he still loves them. You know, could well have just dusted his hands off and say, see you later, I'm away to Ephesus. The ministry's working out well there too. But he doesn't. And this passage tells us why. There are four things that motivated Paul's ministry of reconciliation, even to the point where he's encouraging this messy church to be reconciled to God, right? Here are the four things. Number one, fear. Fear. Fear, verses 11 to 13. The fear of God made Paul want to do this ministry. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Now, think about this for a second, right? While some fears are totally irrational, generally speaking, like moths, generally speaking, fear works to stop us doing things that are daft and to help us do things that are sensible, okay? The fear of God essentially works in the same way. When you fear God, you carry around with you this really deep sense of awe and reverence for who he is to the point that it stops you doing things that are daft, Like allowing the criticism of opinions and of people in the church to dictate what you do in ministry. That was Paul's temptation. I mean, Paul could have easily bent or snapped under the pressure that the church was putting on him in Corinth. But the fear of God worked to help Paul do the thing that was sensible and right. You see, verse 10, as we looked at last week in our evening service, said, His eyes are on the judgment seat of Christ. We fix it. So it says, um, Where are we? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So he has his eyes on his reward. And he wants to serve, not in the dread of condemnation, but in anticipation of the reward he gets for his, his own service. It's true it pleases Jesus for Paul and people like us to put in the effort to do what Paul says in verse 11 and try to persuade others. Persuasion, to use powers of speech to convince people of the truth and commend the truth to people. And Paul says the very means by which I do that, I'm not, I'm not fearing people when I do that. I'm going to fear God when I do that. And that completely regulates what I say, how I say it, and to what extent I appreciate. Okay? He's not a people pleaser. Paul is not the kind of person who shape shifts to a million different um, expectations from others. No, verse 11 tells us, he just basically says, look, what I am is plain to God. And I hope it's plain to you too, he says. In other words, in my life, it's totally consistent. I live to please him. I'm not going to be shoved around. I'm not going to be changed. I'm not going to be one person when I'm with you and another person when I'm with them. I am who I am before God. And that's what the fear of God does in life and ministry. Now, what does it mean for us? Well, primarily, it should make us really take pride in the gospel leadership that Paul exemplifies. That's actually the primary point of this passage. If you want to understand the whole book of 2 Corinthians, you need to look at 1 Corinthians 1, 12 to 14, and this little bit of the passage here. Where Paul is actually saying to them, you don't have any credibility in in negating my gospel ministry. You've every reason to actually be proud of it. Don't boast in the stuff that these fancy Dan preachers are boasting in, like their fancy suits or their wonderful speech or their, you know, know—they're incredible, culturally speaking. You would, though Paul might not be the kind of person you would see on TV or go to hear at a university lecture, he's God's gospel man. The call of this passage is to boast in him. Verse 12 we are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you, church, an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what's in the heart. In other words, what is on the face, on the surface, rather than what's truly going on. Paul's like, they're the shapeshifters, these false teachers, the super apostles that he tackles in chapter 10 and on. No, we can take pride in Paul's ministry Even with all the bumps and bruises and scars, suffering. And to do so is to rejoice in God's power. Because Paul's ministry is incredible. But the reason why he's saying, I'm saying this just to reinforce what this ministry actually is, but not to commend myself, because ultimately, well, what's he said already in chapter 4? I'm just a jar of clay, I'm a fragile pot right? In which God has put what? Treasure. Gospel treasure. And through this clay pot demonstrates what? His all-surpassing power. Why? Well, don't be daft. It's so that he can get the glory. So that God alone gets the praise for it. Not Paul. Now, how does that come about? How does Paul operate in a way where he doesn't get glory for himself even though his ministry is astonishingly incredible yeah he deflects all praise and glory to the one who truly deserves it to the lord god himself that's what it means to live in the fear of god and that's what it means for us to rejoice and take pride in paul's ministry there are people who negate it even today some of the stuff that he says i mean you know i hear it fairly often like Oh, if only Paul was a bit more like Jesus. What a silly thing to say. What an offense to the Holy Spirit who not only enabled and empowered Christ himself and his ministry as we see from the Gospels, but he filled Paul and gave him the words to say. You can't say things like that without ripping your Bible up to shreds. Be wary of that kind of chat. But take pride in this and his teaching. Paul, by God's grace, provides such a wonderful insight into the gospel through his explanation. But there's a secondary application to this too, a lesser but still possible application, that we should praise God for enabling such persistence in Paul because he then becomes a model to us. He knows and esteems God so truly that he'll go to great lengths to be a God-pleaser alone and not a people-pleaser. That's what he wants us to see in 2 Corinthians, with his heart on his sleeve saying, what we are is plain to God, I hope it's plain to you. That we all in this church family are actually gospel ministers. We're all saved and called to be proclaimers of this gospel to the world and to each other. And we all do ministry when we speak and apply this gospel into each other's lives. I guarantee the fear of man will stop us doing that, we will let one another's sin go unchecked, we will be so self-centered, we will not even think to encourage the person, speak positively into people's lives in a way that commends Christ. The call for us is to let God be bigger in our estimation than the opinion of others. As author Ed Wells said, when people are big and God is small, that's the fear of man. But people, in your estimation, should be small and God should be big. That's the way to truly fear God. And all gospel ministry done in the fear of the Lord is commendable. Well, that's the first thing, the fear of God. That's the first thing that motivated Paul's ministry of reconciliation in 11 to 13. The second, love, verses 14 to 15. The love of Christ made Paul want to do this gospel ministry this ministry of reconciliation verse 14 reads for christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again now two questions here one in what way is the love of christ shown according to these verses through Christ's death which tells us that when you look to the cross you see a demonstration of love that's what Jesus in John 14 told us to anticipate when he said greater love has no one than this to lay down his life for one's friends you're my friends if you do what I command so his death would be a demonstration of sacrificial love Paul says the same in Romans 5:8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners what Christ died for us now what do we notice about the death of Christ well if love is what is shown who is it shown to well it's easy the answer's in the text those he died for but who are they who are this who are represented by the word all in this passage. Does the all of verse 14 mean everyone without exception? Did Jesus die for everybody? No, I think the all needs to be applied to the same group of people all the way through the chapter, and that's to the people of God. In other words, all who receive Christ as Savior and Lord. The second question is, what effect does receiving such incredible love through the death of Christ have on those who are loved? Well, the first answer to that is it kills them. It kills them. They die. Not physically, of course, but spiritually. The death he died is effectively our death. This is what's called union with Christ. We died in him when he died for our sins. When he died for our sins, he took the punishment that was due for our transgressions, our iniquities. On himself, so that we would not receive the punishment, the right punishment for those sins, which is what? Death. Eternal death. Now, this is when we died for our sins, then he took punishment on himself, and instead of dying, we receive life. Life in his name. That's the glory of the gospel. In fact, this is the very thing that we demonstrate in baptism. When we celebrate someone coming to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In baptism, we celebrate the new life of a new believer. But we sometimes forget that effectively, the water symbolizes a grave. At one uh, baptism service in a previous church in which I was a pastor, I, I, I stood over the tank and said, here lies an open grave and Jesus bids you come and die. Well, you should have seen the look on the faces of those who were getting baptized. I think they were a little bit anxious as to how long I was going to try and hold them under that time. I think there's something for holding people under the water for as long as possible, just so they grasp the theological theological significance of uh, death. No, that's not going to carry, is it? Never mind. Folks who are getting baptized soon are getting really worried now, but that's okay. We'll not do that. Never mind. Just hope that it's Paul and not me doing the baptism. Anyway. But yeah. I mean, it is effectively an open grave. The call is to come and die, not physically, spiritually, symbolically. Go into the water, die to self. Come out of the water as a... He doesn't live for himself anymore because he died. In Christ. He lives for Christ. He lives for him. And you know why? There's perfect reasoning to this. Because a love like Christ's, where he would die for something as serious as your eternal hell, is a love that cannot possibly be spurned. Should not be. No, it can't be spurned. It can't be disregarded. It's the kind of love that's better than a million of the best loves that you could ever receive here. It ought not to be spurned, it ought to be reciprocated. And that's what drives Paul's ministry. It's as if he says, if he laid down his life for me, I cannot do anything but lay my life down for him. He was so thankful. Now, what does this mean for us? Well, it means that we ought to let the love of Christ control and constrain us in the same way. It certainly means we should appreciate it in the Apostle Paul, it certainly means we should appreciate it in gospel leadership. But there's a very direct application to all of us in this. Sometimes I feel we direct too much of our love towards ourselves. Do you not think? I'm guilty of that. I wonder if you are too. You know, we hear Jesus say, love one another and as what love one another as you love yourself. But we kind of focus a little bit more on the second half of that phrase than the first. We love ourselves too much if all we live for as ourselves if we live for just what we want to do to the neglect of the things that God has actually called us to do. We ought to regulate this sinful kind of self-love by putting love for self in its proper place, number three, behind. Love for God and love for others. Love for Jesus is exactly what stopped Paul washing his hands of the Corinthians. It stopped him hating them and cursing them, and it kept him loving them in service of Christ, whom he loved the most. It regulated everything for him. And that's the second thing that made him pursue their hearts, correct their errors, and implore them to be reconciled to God. Love for Christ. The third thing, status. Verses 16 to 17. Paul's regard for those who are in Christ made him want to do this ministry of reconciliation as well. We see in verses uh, 16 and 17. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Well, the death of Christ for God's people everywhere transformed the way Paul looked at those people, transformed the way he looked at the people of God in the church in Corinth. It transformed his perspective on everybody. He no longer viewed people from a worldly point of view, but from a heavenly point of view. Now, we can think about how valuable this is, even when you think about church life and how messy this is. You know, the messy day-to-day stuff of life together. I mean, you can imagine, I guess, that there's someone who offends you. Um, They break a confidence, or let's say they say something in anger. Now, what's the difference between you regarding them from a worldly point of view or a heavenly point of view? If you regard someone from a worldly point of view, how are you gonna react? If you think of them just as individual personalities, what are you tempted to do? I guess if you're offended, you'd be tempted to steer clear, definitely unfriend them on Facebook. Others may be more open about their unhappiness and go and voice it to the person, but maybe not in a particularly Christian, reconciliatory way. But if you regard people from a heavenly point of view with the knowledge that they are a brother or sister in Christ, and loved by Jesus just as much as you are, then how might you react? If you're thinking no different, then we need to talk, because Paul's point is that it changes everything. It puts you to death again, and helps you remember that if this person is so loved by Christ, then surely you ought to love them as well. That's how the gospel works. That's what happened for Paul, even in his regard for Christ, as he mentions. You know, Paul once regarded Christ as a, he's a theological threat, a blasphemous stench in the nostrils of God. That's what many considered Jesus to be when they considered him from a worldly point of view. But on the Damascus Road, when Paul was given a heavenly point of view on Jesus because Jesus appeared in glory to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Everything changed for Paul. Saw him for who he truly was. And Paul says here, in the same way, really, I regard everyone in Christ. There's that phrase again. In other words, everyone who is saved, loved by God, reconciled to him. I regard everyone in Christ from Christ's perspective. So Paul could say, when I look at the church in Corinth, you know, I see sinners saved by grace people Jesus loved and died for needing help. He had compassion towards them essentially. He loved them enough to persist. That didn't mean he he didn't speak into the situations that they were experiencing. No, he loved them enough to rebuke as well. In fact, he says something a little bit more astonishing even in verse 17. In verse 17, Paul says, if I see anyone in Christ, I see the new creation. I see the new creation. He doesn't say, I see each of them as a new creation. Although that's theologically true, right? That's true. We are new creations in him. But the text actually reads, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. Doesn't say anything else in between. Although in my wickedness, I kind of want to add the word boom. If anyone is in Christ, boom, new creation. That's how it reads. That's why I'm a pastor and not a Bible translator though. Well, these people are the foretaste Of the new creation. That's what Paul sees. In them, as weak and as messy as they are, they're still the new creation breaking into this life and a foretaste of the glory to come. When they will be fully transformed, fully reconciled, just as Paul himself will be too. Just as we will be. Is that how we view each other? You know, if we view each other like that, then boy, ministry will explode The grace of the gospel will be so rich it will be a treasure to us. There will be no needing to convince people to come back to church. We'll despair at how much we've missed out. It's glorious. This is what drives Paul's ministry of reconciliation. Even as the church in Corinth are kicking against the goads and elbowing them out the way and Tearing apart his character. He loves them enough to persist. Let the love of Christ for his people regard all from a heavenly perspective. We are new creation. Even in this room, it's hard to believe, isn't it? But it's true. Just a taste. That's the third thing that made him pursue their hearts, correct their errors, and implore them to be reconciled to God. The fourth and final thing is calling calling. The commission God gave Paul made him want to do this ministry, and that's what we see in verses 18 to 21. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul tells us two things in here. That God has reconciled Paul to himself. We touched on that a second ago. And Paul, that means serves as one who knows what it means to be, knows what it's like to be an enemy of God. That's what we are without Christ. We are alienated and enemies. Separate, not friends, Enemies because of our sinful behavior. We're the Craig's in the story at the start. But God is the one, Paul says, who takes this initiative in reconciling the relationship just like Joe in the story of the, at the start with his deficient dad. God makes the first move. In love, he sends his son to be the savior of the world. Have you grasped this yet? savior of us to reconcile us now even the concept of reconciliation is a really important thing to consider it's an important word to understand as you read your Bibles because I think if we just understand uh, God's salvation in terms of forgiveness of sin we stop just too short of what Christ has actually won for us we fall short of the true glories of the gospel. Think about it. I mean, our, our sin is an offense against God. If he was just a judge and acquittal or pardon was all he gave, then that would be great, of course, given the sinfulness we know. But it's not the fullness of the gospel. You know, a judge in a law court can declare someone not guilty, but he doesn't, like, get down out of the from the bench and say, hi, do you want to be my pal? Do you want to be my friend? Should we go for dinner and... Chat, let me get to know you. No, but God does. Declaring not only that you are pardoned when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, but puts his arm around you and says, let's be friends. We are friends now that we're reconciled. Let's figure out what that looks like. And that's the difference. A judge in a law court can declare someone not guilty, but doesn't seek a relationship. But God in Christ offers us more than forgiveness. He offers us himself Alienation is resolved by reconciliation through the atoning work of Christ. And God took the initiative. He doesn't just want justice. He wants you. He wants reconciled relationships. And the way he makes that known is by giving it to people like Paul. Verse 18, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now he's given it specifically here to Paul as an apostle of God, a sent one, But through Paul and through the scriptures that we have, he gives this ministry to all of us. Can you imagine? I mean, what better thing do you have to live for for the rest of the day than this? Or tomorrow, or any other day that the Lord gives you? He, Paul, and we are part of God's salvation plan. This is what God is doing in the world. There's nothing bigger or better to live for than this to the point that Paul effectively sees himself as an ambassador. Now, contrary to what the adverts tell us, an ambassador is not someone who holds fancy receptions and serves up Frero roshi. An ambassador is someone who represents, truly represents their sending sovereign in another place. And that's what Paul does. Because of that, Paul relentlessly pursues the people of, that God has given him to love. Representing God truly. Standing up for what God says. Reinforcing what God expects. As though God was making his appeal through Paul. Through us. And when he does that, when Paul ministers in this way, he best represents God. And when God's people respond rightly, Actually, as the Corinthians have started to do, the gospel is more brightly displayed to the world, the world that God is reconciling to himself in Christ, still. Still about it. As verse 19 says. And that's the message that Paul proclaims. He's given a ministry and he's given the message as well in this calling. He has, verse 19, committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20. So we implore you, be reconciled to God. Now, don't miss this. Who's he saying this to? Who is Paul saying, who's he speaking to when he says, be reconciled to God? He's saying it to Christians. He's not saying it to lost people out there in the world, so he's not talking about evangelism, he's talking to the people of God, the already saved ones, but he is talking to people who have, through listening to false teachers and living in immorality, are pretty much showing that they have deviated from the gospel that Paul brought them, the true gospel. And Paul is so concerned about this deviation because this deviation from his ministry is a deviation from the true gospel. Which means that they're really trying to bring alienation back into the relationship by pulling away from Paul, God's apostle, and Paul's message about Christ. See how serious it is? So Paul works among them and encourages them to live up to the repentance that they've already been demonstrating to say to them, let's bring that repentance to the full. Let's see the evidence of your sorrow over your immorality, your idolatry and your division and your separation from me as God's apostle. Uh, Basically, it's Paul saying, by the fruit of your repentance, we'll see whether or not you are truly saved. Now, he's basically saying, look, if these differences and issues are not reconciled, the witness of the church will suffer. In fact, it will not be a true church. But for Paul, his encouragement to them is be reconciled. It's not that they're not reconciled. If they're in Christ, they truly are. But it's the same as sanctification. You know, when, when we are saved, even as verse 21 says, we are given the righteousness of God. But do you feel righteous? How righteous do you feel right now? Not very, because you're wishing I was finished. But I'm not done yet. But God gives us the very thing he demands of us in this righteousness, positionally so, as he views us, we are Christ to him. Isn't that glorious? That's mind blowing. But that's what imputation is, that's what he gives us in Christ. Now how? What has 2 Corinthians 3.18 already said about what we do in the daily life? Well, we are being transformed bit by bit, little by little, into his likeness. Day by day, until that day when we're truly glorified, we live in the light of that righteousness that we already have as a gift. Wow. Oh. Do you not feel the guilt and shame lifting? Well, the same is true in regards to our reconciliation. We are reconciled. But until that point when we truly receive that heavenly inheritance and see our Savior face-to-face, we are to be ongoingly reconciled to God every day, enjoying that reconciled relationship. And that, brothers and sisters, is the kind of ministry that motivated Paul. Those are the things that motivated him to do this ministry This fear of the Lord, this love of Christ, this this understanding of the status of believers as new creation, and this call of God to be reconciled and to be an ambassador of His doing reconciliatory ministry. And it's all made possible because of verse 21. Oh, I could do a whole new sermon right on this passage right now, this text. It's all possible because of Him. Because God, that's who it starts with, made him, Jesus Christ, who had no sin, the sinless one, he made him to be not a sinner, but sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Center and fix your eyes, your gaze, your heart on this text and understand the great exchange that is taking place. Especially if you're here and you're not a Christian, you think, man, I'm just really, I'm here because I'm really trying to dust myself off and start to do right things and live a good life so that God might accept you. That is doomed to fail. This text says that God has already done the work 2,000 years ago. And this righteousness that you're seeking isn't something that you can earn or do or achieve by yourself. It's a gift to receive and a gift alone. All you have to do is believe. For just as Adam's treason alienated the world from God, so too now the world, including you, if you will, through the faithfulness of Christ, can be reconciled to God. Through this great exchange transacted at the cross, declared acceptable to the world through an empty tomb. God gave us His Son to remove the thing that alienated us and gave us the righteousness that reconciles the holy God who is to be feared with sinful people who deserve to be judged and shows us his love. So I implore you, on behalf of Christ Jesus, be reconciled, all of you, to God. Let's pray.